Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Light as a bird who had a passion for altitudes far above sea level. No interruption! My heart fell with him and was shattered as he was. How in hell can I work with those goddamn dogs that Rudy's barking up a storm? Don't tell Rudy to either shoot them or shut them up! Hi, Jenna. Well, hello, Bart. I hear we have a special theme today. <laughs> Is that your Tennessee accent? Yeah. It's my pan-southern accent. Pretty much anyone from the South is going to just be a Southern belle in my eyes. Well, the fellow that we're covering today, his name might be Tennessee, but he's actually from Mississippi. So uh, Same damn state. So, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we're doing the movies of Tennessee Williams, and there are a lot of them. Probably more than we should have tackled all in one episode, but we're doing it. We've got eight of them. I'm a big fan. I've been dying to do this Tennessee Williams episode for a long time. I think uh, ever since I tried out for the role of the gentleman caller in the Glass Menagerie in high school and, <laughs> and didn't get it, I've, uh, I've been... Uh, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I've been interested in Tennessee Williams. So I've, do you want to do a couple yeah. lines right now? Here, you have an audience. Stella! Stella! <laughs> I'm, convinced. I I'm convinced. I'm <laughs> convinced. So... The 60s was not actually his time, the big decade for Tennessee Williams in the movies. They made a lot of them in the 60s, but they're not the ones we remember. The ones we remember are Streetcar Named Desire, obviously, Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. Both of those are two absolute favorites of mine. I've seen them so many times. Rose Tattoo, Baby Doll, like these are all 50s movies, but as we get into the 60s, these uh, these movies that were made from plays of his are seemingly of a lesser nature. And if, I don't know if we have the uh, wherewithal to actually analyze like if the problem is with the plays or the productions. I, I kind of have a theory that with censorship breaking down in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s, and throughout the 60s, the more that you could talk about on the screen, the less mystery there is in a lot of Tennessee Williams plays. Like, you know... The, a lot of what's so fascinating about Streetcar and Kenna Hutton Roof is the sex is such a major part of these movies, but that stuff couldn't be talked about directly. Oh, Suddenly Last Summer, one of my favorites. I forgot to mention that one. But the sex just has to be, especially homosexuality, has to be very glancingly referred to so much that it's almost kind of ridiculous. It's It's kind of impossible to even know what these plays are about if you don't see the coded gay subtext in, in all these plays. Well, but didn't Sweet Bird of Youth get it like an X rating when it came out? Like, these movies were still pretty raunchy for the 60s. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the problem, that in the 60s, the lack of censorship meant that you didn't have to code everything. You could actually, like, have people in bed with each other humping, and, and it was okay. <laughs> and that sort of takes away from his plays in a certain way, for me. See, that's interesting, though, because in a way, I never realized... Uh, you know, the, I saw, you know, Streetcar Named Desire, and I didn't realize that, that there was a rape scene in it until much later. And I think that that would have made the movie make more sense to me. I spent the first time I saw it, granted I was young and stupid, but like the first time I saw that I was so confused as to what was actually happening. 
and why people were going so crazy and over what. I don't know. I mean, I've seen it since, and, and it makes a lot more sense to me. So I don't know if I was just literally totally not paying attention. <laughs> but I do think that that rape scene, the, the lack of it is kind of a bummer. I mean, granted, I never really want to see a rape scene, but it's sort of a bummer for the narrative. Except if you know how to read it, it's so clearly there. And it's just such an amazing experience for me when I can sort of, you know, especially if it's, you know, I've seen, I'm seeing it for the second time and I didn't have any idea what was going on the first time I saw it. And then I realized, oh my God, there's a rape happening right now. That's the whole key to this movie. And I just get dirty thrills from that sort of thing where it's like this thing that you're not supposed to talk about. Like you've actually figured it out and you, and you. I think that's just more like Sherlock Holmes thrills than it's... <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. But also when it's, you know, something so sordid, that also adds to the thrill of it. Right, I feel you. Yeah, I, I mean, like, that is definitely the appeal of Tennessee Williams. I mean, I guess for me, I, I see him, his work in the 60s and these movies, and I just think, well, this is when... It isn't literally when he died, but it's kind of when he started to go in his track of, of drinking himself to death and totally, you know, losing his focus and sort of losing his audience because he was definitely someone who was obsessed with the love of a crowd, as are the vast majority of the people that we're going to ever talk about on Cinema 60 who go into a, a job like this. And the second that he was not writing A Streetcar Named Desire levels of fantastic plays that are legendary pure Americana and instead just drinking a ton of whiskey and jotting something down and having it flop on stage twice, which is what happened to Boom under two different directors. I think that kind of sealed him forever into that road of uh, destruction. Yeah. I mean, we're going to see a lot of actresses past their prime in, in these movies that we're watching, and they're all kind of stand-ins for Tennessee Williams. Like, if you see an aging woman uncertain about her sexual appeal you know whether she's still got it anymore you know that, that that's the autobiographical figure in a, in a Tennessee Williams play and yeah that seems to be his real thing in the 60s is like have I still got it do people still want me am I appealing to these young kids it's both having to do with sex and fame I think but um, maybe we should just we have a lot of movies to cover so maybe we should just jump right in to the fugitive kind 1960 Sidney Lumet, and it is based on Orpheus Descending. That's the name of the, the 1957 play this was based on, and it's kind of a retelling of the Orpheus myth. It's a little hard to read it in the movie as it's presented here, but it's it's there. I mean, Marlon Brando plays Valentine Snakeskin Xavier, who, uh, <laughs> who was always carrying his guitar, his life's companion, and, and his uh, snakeskin jacket, the symbol of his individuality and his belief in personal freedom. Yeah, I mean, clearly Nicolas Cage should have been the one playing this role. <laughs> but I'm awfully glad it was Marlon Brando because uh, I think he brings more sex to this 
movie than the Nick than, Cage, uh, yes, any, of course. No, <laughs> than, <laughs> than anybody in any of these other movies that we watched. It's kind of great that we're finally seeing movies from the biggest male heartthrobs of the '60s. We haven't seen anything from Marlon Brando yet. We hadn't haven't seen anything from Paul Newman yet. We haven't seen anything from Robert Redford yet, and we're getting all three of them in this episode. So, we haven't. Uh, no. <laughs> Shit, I'm, I'm sorry. Amazing, I'm slacking, right? man. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Marlon Brando is a club performer. And uh, it's still, it's 1960, so we still have to be kind of vague about what it is he actually does. But that's part of what I love about these movies is the way it's talked about. What he does when he's on stage in New Orleans is, you know, you'd, you'd think it's a, a live sex act, the way it's, it's talked about <laughs> in such hushed tones. But really, I mean, in essence, he's just a gigolo. He'll get up on the stage and the, the ladies in the audience will sort of... Uh, you know, make a bid for him, I, I guess, and uh, take him home with them. And uh, so living this life has, has gotten him into a lot of trouble. He's arrested for rowdiness and drunken misbehavior, and he gets out of lockup, gets out of the drunk tank, and takes off, leaves New Orleans, and tries to leave this life behind, and ends up in this small town in Mississippi, not too far from New Orleans. His car breaks down, and it's a rainstorm, and he of course, finds a lonely middle-aged wife who wants to take him in and protect him. She finds a job for him in a sundry store in town. And the proprietress there, lady, played by Anna Mignani, uh, her husband is in really terrible health, and she's been running the place on her own for a while. And he's just come back from some big surgery that wasn't terribly successful. And so he's he spends the whole movie up in bed dying. And she and Xavier, uh, snakeskin, have a major flirtation as he's, you know, in his button-down shirt and tie, like selling shoes to all the, the young ladies who come in just to flirt with him. The setup, like the first two-thirds of this movie is terrific. It's all just... The other major character in this is uh, Joan Woodward as Carol Coutrere, and um, and she oozes as much sex as uh, Marlon Brando, which is actually kind of weird for her because she she doesn't usually play that kind of role. But it's sort of disappointing after all the steam coming off the screen in this movie. You'd think it would just increase as he could show more throughout the 60s. But no, this is easily the sexiest of all of these plays. It's uh, black and white, shot by Boris Kaufman, who is like one of the greats. It's a beautiful looking movie. He shot La Talon. Well, yeah, I mean, he just, he did, you know, all sorts of Kazan movies and other Lumet movies. He did Uptight, which we watched on Cinema 60. I don't know. I've been talking a lot. What did you think of this movie? I like this. This is a really strong start. I didn't know anything about this one. And I was impressed. Though it is weird. There's a weird mix of... There's like the three main characters in their acting styles don't totally mesh. Uh, I, I love watching the three of them bounce off each other. It's it, good. It, it's great. <laughs> I mean, like Brando is at his most mumbly. And is it kind of felt like he didn't want to be there, even though I know that he actively tried to continually do Tennessee Williams movies in his career. But there's like times where like I had to pause and, and rewind because I missed what he said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it worked. It was good. It was just really, it was sort of weird in comparison, especially to Joan Woodward, who... She reminded me of like the vast majority of girls I knew in high school and college <laughs> in like the weirdest out of time way. Like really this that sort of perpetual party girl, 
who's just too sensitive to handle, uh, you know, how mean real life is and, and hiding all of that in liquor and fun times and going juking, which was mm-hmm. uh, a phrase we need to bring back, I think, even though jukeboxes <laughs> are gone. And having some kind of weird thing with her brother that they're never really too clear about what's going on there. Oh, she's a tragic figure for sure. I mean, like, I feel really <laughs> bad for her. I, I That was what was so good about her. She was she felt really layered and, and like someone who is hiding a, a bunch of pain under this party girl, devil may care attitude. So she was great. She's really interesting. And then you have Mignani, who feels so stilted and almost like you kind of feel her age, quite frankly, <laughs> in watching this film just because of how different the other two are. I mean, when she was shooting this, she was 52 and Brando is 36, but he's meant to be 30. There's not that big of an age difference, but she feels like she's out of a 40s movie or something. She She's just very like old world, <laughs> which works. It totally that... works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's perfect for this movie, though, because she is, she's that figure. She's the Tennessee Williams figure in this movie. She's the aging woman who doesn't think she's still got it, but she's still got this sexual attraction to this young man and just wants to do whatever she can to hold on to him and to keep him in her house and in her life. And, you know, in his bid for respectability, he he's, I mean, there's some attraction, like he's more attracted to what she represents than to her physically but you also think that he's you know had so many love affairs that it's got to be more than just sex for him and he's so i i buy that the 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 relationship between the two of them well he says you're not young at 30 if you've been at the party since you were 15 Mm -hmm. which uh you know I, i get it i get why there would be as you said this attraction to this older woman her story is so depressing. I mean, that was what I really liked about this movie, actually, is maybe the thing that you don't so much like about these movies is I was genuinely shocked at some of the lines in this movie. For as much as this movie holds back, it also slaps you in the face quite literally with some really just god-awful lines of dialogue I can't even repeat because <laughs> there are so many racial slurs in this for for everyone. <laughs> Well, we, we are in the deep south. It, well, it works. That's the thing. It's perfect. It's completely menacing. It's completely effective. And it and it, it really is just, it's shocking in a way that I, you know, I guess in part me as a northerner and, and also, you know, decades later, though, it wouldn't surprise me if you still hear stuff like this down there. But, you know, to, to hear someone just sort of pull out just the most horrendous, you know, the N-word. Just, just like saying it out of the blue, like there was no, nothing to prompt them, but just like, you know, like mm-hmm. just to, to to basically tell him like we're gonna kill you or you stay here kind of thing, which is what the cop eventually says to Brando's character when they're trying to get him out of town because, um, and Yanni's husband, Jabe, he's this like perpetually sweaty, disgusting looking guy who, if any, I mean, it's a perfect example of somebody who's inside is shown on their outside <laughs> he's meant to be dying he's brought up he lives up uh, upstairs on the balcony of this store that he owns and he's just per- always in bed he can't leave bed and he starts to suspect of course that you know the two of them are having this affair and so he starts putting out feelers throughout the town and getting all of his creepy racist friends to come menace everyone including his own wife who he hates and uh, there's some really shocking information you learn about her backstory. I don't know. I kind of don't totally want to 
spoil it because I actually think this was a good one. Of, of all the movies that we watched, this is definitely one to to check out. But it's definitely gloomy. This is just such a depressing, <laughs> gloomy movie that just starts off with the mumbling gloom and only gets darker and darker and darker. I don't buy some of her dark backstory, like when her old lover shows up, who's actually Joanne Woodward's brother, and, and you know, everybody's interconnected here. It is based on a stage play, and you can tell. Like, even the, like, balcony that the husband lives on is very clearly a proscenium. It looks like a stage when you're inside that store. Right. But, yeah, some of the plot mechanics that happen towards the end, when you find out her backstory and what happened to her, and things kind of kick into gear. It sort of loses a lot of its interest for me. I'd rather just have watch the three of them do their stuff for, for two hours than have it, uh, you know, get into the shocking sordid backstories of these people. But, um, so, so for that reason too, maybe we don't need to get into it too much. I mean, you get first references to some, uh, some symbols that, uh, that keep coming back throughout these movies that we watch. We get the swallows, the, like the birds that, that never land and, and there's always this character like the young gigolo type who you know has no direction in life and is you know can't get a foothold into like a normal life and just has to be up in the sky never never landing never coming down and when he when he actually comes down for a landing that's that's when he dies and that's i'm misquoting a famous line in there that i, I didn't manage to write down but yeah these birds these these swallows keep coming back in all of these movies and this fugitive kind of character like sexy young men in these movies who uh, talk about how how warm they are all the time that their uh, body temperatures are 10 degrees warmer than everybody else's and uh and it's it's really funny to to watch that come back over and over in these movies um but uh yeah Anna Mignani has a has a line about uh you know boys who play guitar and go around talking about how warm they are which is great <laughs> Um. <laughs> <laughs> I liked when she tries to dismiss the nurse for being too evil looking. I thought that was legitimate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, all the, all of these movies too are about the people who uphold the, the status quo and persecute anybody who doesn't want to lead a normal life. And the nurse is just another one of these people who, who live how they're told to live and, and can't see anything outside of that. Yeah, I will say that I was really impressed with the lighting in this movie. Yeah, it's a beautiful looking movie. The, I love that, the way the town looks. There's just a great use of light. There's all these scenes and they're very stage-y again, as you mentioned. It, it really does, a lot of this feels like it's on a stage, but it works so well. I mean, there's these scenes where Brando's like waxing poetic and only his eyes are lit up by like one strip of light and everything else is in shadow and, and gloomy and, and the whole the whole movie just has such a good depressing if not sort of draggy pacing and yet it works so well like uh, I mean this is and it's early Lumet right so I mean it's it's not terribly surprising but he does a great job on this we have so many movies to talk about let's just move on to the next one which is Summer and Smoke from 
plays into movies. Beckett is probably his best known film from the, the 60s. Um, and this was based on an early play by Tennessee Williams, 1948. It's set in the turn of the century. It's right at the beginning of the 20th century. So everybody has parasols and red pinstripes and, and everything you associate with that time period. Small town living. And they're all miserable. This one I, I watched a couple years ago thinking, I'll put on something light. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't actually look at anything other than the poster and I, you know, and who was in it. And uh, boy, was I disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is about a, uh, a repressed spinster, as IMDb likes to say, who was uh, Geraldine Page playing Alma. And she lives with her mother, who I think is basically has Alzheimer's, but they don't say that explicitly. And her father, who is a, a preacher, right? Mm-hmm. And she has a big crush on the hot doctor next door from a family of hot doctors, I, I'm going to presume, <laughs> which is uh, Lawrence Harvey, who plays John Buchanan Jr. And he, of course, was a promising young doctor. He gets a drinking habit, goes away, comes back as kind of a partier. Everyone's like, well, you were such a good doctor. Why don't you do the doctoring anymore? And he's like, ah, whiskey. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. And so the I having too much fun. <laughs> and so the whole movie is essentially Alma sort of pining away for John as John goes off with uh, Rita Moreno, actually, who plays Rosa, who is, of course, the spicy Latina other girl next door i suppose <laughs> her father owns like a club not just any club it's the moon lake casino which comes back in all of these tennessee williams movies at least we hear about the moon lake casino at least two more times oh, really um <laughs> any of the yeah any of these movies set in small town mississippi are all i think supposed to be based on where tennessee williams or uh thomas williams was born columbus mississippi I know he went to high school in St. Louis, so yeah, it's a you know sort of early childhood memories. But yeah, all all this small town Mississippi stuff is just supposed to be his hometown, I think. And evidently, there was this actual place, the Moon Lake Casino, where I, I guess as a child he just uh, you know imagined all the really sketchy stuff that happened there, and it just you know this forbidden place that adults went to when it was late at night, and who knows what they got up to? Cockfighting, <laughs> drinking. Some light stripping implied. Mm -hmm. Prostitution. There's a lot of racist Latino caricatures in this movie, which is definitely a, a big strike against it. I, I found it wasn't... Well, I mean, it's, it is racist, but it's also more like it's broad stroke caricature kind of stuff that's just dumb and it takes away from the, the movie. But anyhow, yeah, I don't know. This movie... I, I don't like this movie, and I don't like it for multiple reasons. <laughs> And I'm curious because I know you like it. Oh, yeah. This is great. It's very studio-bound. You never feel like you're out in the real world in this thing, and it does feel very much like a play because it's you, you feel so trapped into these like fairy tale sets where, where nothing seems very real. And I think going back in the past kind of kind of adds to that and makes it appealing for me. That is problem number one with this movie is that it was produced by Hal Wallace in between Elvis films trying to come up with his next Casablanca or whatever the fuck. He's so clearly trying to make another prestige film, you know, with Tennessee Williams here. 
And that is the biggest issue with this. It, it just looks awful. You know, unlike Fugitive Kind, which again has this really moody, stylized look to it, really interesting and dynamic camera angles, considering the fact that it feels so stage bound. And yet this one, there's like multiple sets, like a whole world. And it just looks like the crap. It looks like Mary Poppins. It just looks like junk, <laughs> you know, without, of course, the cartoons. But it looks like it's trying to be this lighthearted musical romp. And yet the material is anything but. And I just think that they completely got the wrong tone and the the wrong producer. I mean, Peter Glenville, let's see, what what did he do? Yeah, I think he was more of a stage director. Oh, that's right. You said he did Beckett. It's that kind of, yeah, I mean, like that sort of stuff works if you're going for Shakespeare. It does not work for Tennessee Williams. You need some rawness. You need some grittiness. And there's none of that to be found in this except in the script and in some of the performances. I think there's some decent, I mean, Geraldine Page is always great. And I actually was impressed with old Lawrence Harvey in this. Yeah, I always find him a little stiff, but... He did a good job in it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of like the fakeness of it. I think it added to some feel about it. it. It became more of a fable, I guess, than a gritty melodrama like you expect from Tennessee Williams. And it's another thing, you know, I can't... I go into Tennessee Williams looking for the gay subtext and... You can't not find it if you're looking for it. And very clearly, Alma, Geraldine Page, is the stand-in for Tennessee Williams. She's the male uh, lusting after the, the sexy guy next door who is this playboy who's sort of drinking his successful career away because he's he, too, is a repressed homosexual. And he keeps like having this sort of flirtation with Alma, thinking, yeah, I, should, I just need to go for it with her. But he also like knows that... It's not what he's supposed to do. It's not the, like, you know, he just wants to keep that side of him repressed. So it's all, yeah, I mean, it's all about this repressed desire and whether to go with your heart and your, your loins or, or follow a conventional route or, or, you know, and do what your parents expect of you or, you know, just, just live your own life. And uh, I think it really works. And when you're digging for subtext, this movie reveals more on, on multiple viewings. I see why you don't like it so much. But no, there's more. Uh... And here's the thing now. If, <laughs> if you wanted to remake the movie the way that you just described it, I would 1,000% help produce it for you because it sounds like a great movie. I would love to watch that movie. <laughs> and yet the movie that we have is instead a old woman spinster who you know was raised in the church. And there's all these lines about how repressed she is. Some women are cold and frigid, but you have a special energy and this sort of flirtation. And, and I don't, the whole thing really just, it, it annoys me on two levels. On one level, I dislike the whole spinster as the bad guy thing. I just, it just annoys me. I feel like, you know, the spinster lady next door is typically just miserable <laughs> And not like this evil bitch who's trying to ruin your life. You got that from Alma? Yeah, well, Alma, well, well, so here's the thing is that I think Alma's easily a terrible person and a bad guy. And that's the other thing that I didn't like is that this movie (laughs) does not think that Alma is the bad guy, but Alma was 1000% awful and she deserves to rot in hell. (laughs) Oh, poor Alma. You know, on the other side, I kind of, I love when, when you get people that are total hypocrites in movies and especially when they're trying to lean on religion in order to 
prop themselves up for their hypocritical beliefs. So what I like about this movie is that she she is the bad guy in that way. Like I like that this really points out the hypocrisy of, you know, these upright, uptight people. But I also feel like the movie doesn't do this well. The script does this well. It's interesting that she's sort of set up as the person who has been tortured and teased her whole life you know for being good-natured and speaking in in large words I think is one of the things that they make fun of her for and uh you know being a good daughter essentially and she gets teased mercilessly for that and then when she gets older she becomes bitter and then now she doesn't know how to grow outside of what she already knows because nobody's ever wanted to give her the experience to, to do it that's an interesting concept, you know, like I, I'm down with that. It's a good amount of depth for this type of character. And then she becomes so, so bitter. So the big turning point in this film, the, there's all this, this flirtation and she goes, I think, on even one date with John Buchanan. Yeah, to the cockfights. Right. And she tries, she, <laughs> he finally takes her on this date because she keeps saying, you promised me, you promised me. And he's sort of entertaining her in a way he's you know i think it's more that he's wonders you know if he can layer because it's a challenge kind of thing is sort of what's implied that's really his big interest other than the fact that he's known her his whole life and he tries to seduce her and she at the end you know just won't unbutton her blouse and like go for it and and he and he freaks out at her and he says why are you so afraid of your emotions and he storms out on her and he makes her he like sends her like to walk home alone in the swamp and she feels terrible while he goes and gets super drunk and then throws this crazy party in his house where he ends up getting gambling his way into a marriage with Rosa and all of this so then Alma sees all these drunk latino people unfortunately uh hanging out in the front yard so of course she she calls his father to tell on him and say you have to come back and there's all of these brown people outside (laughs) the father then gets there and then the father ends up getting shot because the father is also like you know starts having some sort of racist tirade about you know who are all these strangers in my house is what it kind of boils down to you don't feel too bad about him getting shot some of the stuff coming out of his mouth yeah no you 1000 percent don't and and of course alma's doing this she calls the father in her mind she's doing it out of concern but the truth is that she's just jealous right And so then what happens the next morning is that essentially the father dies from this gunshot wound and John blames her and he's right. Yeah. (laughs) She's 100% to blame. And he slams a bunch of cool like truth bombs on her too about how, well, he calls her like a hysterical old maid who's terrified of the animal in herself and the animal in others. And as much as I wish that had been maybe framed a little bit better i I completely agree with the sentiment (laughs) i mean she's terrible she's awful what it sounds like you're getting at is almost a lot like natalie wood and splendor in the grass and you love that movie no because natalie wood wasn't a hypocrite alma thinks that she is doing this out of the good of her heart and the movie never really frames her as the bad guy you know you get lawrence who's sitting there he goes on a whole tirade about how she's an evil bitch and (laughs) ruined his life and killed his father and you know needs to look at a map of a naked person and and point to the the genitalia (laughs) i think they make her extremely unlikable like she's just got such a stuck-up personality like she's so 
she's such a priss that she she comes off as really unlikable and you you want her to get her act together and she never does i think she is a villain but then lawrence I mean, he's not a good character by no way in in 1960s morality is this is the guy who's like womanizing gets married when he's drunk i know that he changes his way and he reforms and so the thing too is this whole movie ends with this idea that they switch places he ends up being the upright uh you know he essentially straight up learns what she's talking about in as far as he starts to understand her degree of spirituality and why she doesn't need instant gratification constantly and learning to be happy with yourself and learning to sort of go with god as it were to find um inspiration in the one thing that brings him joy which is being a doctor and helping the community and this sort of christ-like come to god moment Whereas she then, having had this experience uh, and, and losing so much and losing his potential love, which she was never really there to begin with and realizing all of that, she then becomes the, the, the fast and loose woman. At least she is seen at the end going to a, on a date to the casino again and realizing, and there's this whole bit of dialogue about realizing that the timing was off. Had I still been the person that I was when you first met me, which is a beginning Ama, then, you know, by the end, and John would have would have loved me because I was perfect for him. But now I'm corrupt because I've tasted, you know, vengeance and lust. And now I can only, you know, become now she's basically like implying that she's going to drink herself to death. Uh, I get a, I get sort of a positive vibe from the end. Like she finds this guy, this traveling salesman to sort of have a fling with. And it's like, screw oh, her. <laughs> I don't want her. She deserves to rot in hell. Like I said, um, I straight up believe that she's just such a hypocrite. I mean, she, everything that she did in the name of God was just out of selfishness and, and obnoxiousness. And the movie doesn't totally recognize that. And the script recognizes it. It's there. But this stupid, corny Hal Wallace sheen on everything <laughs> It just takes away from it. It's like this layered, interesting thing that gets gussied up as a, you know, this stupid, as you said, like pinstripes and parasols. And I don't know. I just can't. This movie doesn't do it. Well, for me. I'm sorry you didn't get the Elvis movie you were expecting from this thing, but I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. This is my second time watching this. And, and I, I will say that at least I think I actually fell asleep the first time I watched it. I think I straight up, there were whole stretches of this film I had no memory of. But but do you get it? He finds his soul and she loses her soul. And Alma means soul. It only mentions it like six or seven times in the, in the, in the course of the movie. Um, anyway, moving on to... Another movie from the same year, 1961, The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. novel actually of Tennessee Williams from 1950 he only wrote one other novel I think and that was much that was right at the end of his career it does have a different feel to it it's not as dialogue driven as uh, as the other movies and I think that kind of works against this movie in a lot of ways it ends up being kind of dull like it doesn't know what to replace that missing you know Tennessee Williams dialogue the you know the stagey dialogue it doesn't know what to replace that with this is about a famous stage actress, Karen Stone, who is getting older. She's getting a lot of criticism for playing roles that are too young for her. 
she's you know getting a little disenchanted with the stage life she's got a much older husband and they're traveling to Rome together and he has a heart attack on the plane and dies so she ends up in Rome all alone and decides she's just going to stay there so she rents a just really fancy apartment right in the heart of Rome right on one of the hills you know she has a lot of visitors who you know want to visit the famous Mrs. Stone and uh, one of these popular visitors is is the Contessa and she's just this you know old woman with the title but no money who lives in Rome and is just sort of lives off trying to hook rich women up with her stable of young studs and so she brings Paolo over to Mrs. Stone's apartment. Paolo's played by Warren Beatty to try and spark her interest and get her to give Paolo a bunch of money so that the Contessa can get her cut. In a way, it sort of goes as planned. Mrs. Stone and Paolo do kind of take up together, but she like, she sees through him, knows he's a gigolo and, and doesn't want any of his baloney, like says, oh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll treat you right, but I'm not going to give you cash that makes me feel cheap. So he ends up kind of living with her in her apartment and grows sort of attached to her. He's still this sort of gigolo type who's, who's got other things on the side, but he's feeling more and more like he's, again, this, uh, this fugitive kind who can't be tied down to like a conventional life. And he starts to feel bored sort of as Mrs. Stone's permanent plaything, even though there is, he does feel a little something for her. It doesn't, it, Things don't work out well between them, as, as, as you can tell right from the get-go. But it's, it's really her story and how she's trying to deal with both her fading career and this just wanting to reinvent herself in Rome and not have anything to do with her old life. And, you know, she'll run into people that she knew from the States and in Rome and, and they'll try to have dinner with her and she'll blow them off or she'll pretend she doesn't see them when they walk past each other on the street. I feel like this movie would have been a great... Italian film like it's got virtually plotless foreign film written all over it and it could have been great you know if it didn't have that like Hollywood sheen and all the like the musical cues that tell you exactly how to feel and scenes that have been uh, inserted just to give the movie a little bit of drama. Well, this movie would have been great if it had been, like, uh, again, like a gay love story. <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> would have been way more interesting. There's only two things I want to talk about with this movie. The first one is Warren Beatty's accent. <laughs> Warren Beatty. He, he, but he sounds like, he's nice, uh, my wife, like, constantly. It, it is the dopiest thing I've ever heard in my life, and if you have any inkling to watch this movie, it's just because Warren Beatty sounds god-awful. <laughs> you just cannot do it. He's sort of, sometimes he's like pitch perfect. And other times it's like, he sounds like Speedy Gonzalez. I got over it pretty quickly. It's, it's ridiculous. Also, he's awful. He's a terrible human being in this movie. He is so completely devoid of charm. I would not even pay to keep him around. I don't understand. I, I get it. He's cute. He's Warren Beatty. But like, no, I just, he's such an awful character and he's so evil and he gets only more and more overtly evil, which I understand is the the point is that she feels like she has no purpose and, and that, and she's completely lacking self-confidence, which is interesting. There's, there's a degree of interesting things there, but it, the pacing is really bland and. Well, it is a gay love story <laughs> and it's, it's all about Vivian Lee, uh, Mrs. Stone wanting to reinvent herself in Rome. I actually believe this is based on an actual experience that Tennessee Williams had in Rome and, you know, hooking up with this young boy toy gigolo type. 
And she's going around town with him, and people in high society are, are saying, what, what is she doing with him? Why is she, like, always with this guy? And it's particularly her friends from home are saying, this is not you. And it's, it's very clear the reason why she wants to avoid all her old friends is because she just wants to lead this, you know, openly gay lifestyle, and they won't let her. They make her feel bad about it. And uh, I think that's pretty interesting. I mean, it would have been. I, I, this, I don't, I mean, and then here's the thing I really want to talk about, though, is the ending of this movie. So, I mean, like, Paolo gets completely heartless. There's a point where he's just such a spoiled brat, and he starts to get openly nasty to her when she's not just going to hand him money because she's intelligent enough to, to know not to do that. And yet he's sitting there living in her house and, and eating her food and, you know, wearing her clothing and all of this. And, and, he eventually turns to her and he says, like, you're the type of rich old woman who I would expect to be um, found, you know, with her throat slashed in, in, in about three to four years, because that's just what happens to rich old crones like you. And she just sort of like accepts this, like she's shocked by it, but she doesn't, you know, like she doesn't have anything to even say to that because she sort of is, it, you know, and that's like the sadness about this film. And, and I think the most interesting part is just how she uh, internalizes absolutely everything that's t- said to her and especially uh, the negative things you know even when they're unwarranted and, and unfounded and, and unfair uh, and I mean there's even a part where in the before this happens that she says you know when the time comes when nobody desires me for myself I'd rather not be desired at all she you know she doesn't want to sit here and pay for this but you know she's lonely there's some part of her that thinks she does deserve better than what she's you know making herself settle for uh, and so she's sort of doing this little whim of, of Warren Beatty. But anyhow, throughout this whole film, there is a homeless guy who sits on the Spanish steps in her apartment, which, of course, is, overlooks the Spanish steps in Rome. And he stares at her constantly. He's like almost like a stalker. Like anytime she leaves the house, he's there waiting for her. And anytime she's on the roof and looking out at her view, he's down there looking up at her. And he's never menacing he doesn't go after her be creepy so much but he's like this ever-present weird and it creeps her out obviously and so at the end when finally Warren Beatty walks out she invites this homeless person into her house and then this like dark chords play (laughs) (laughs) what the hell what is that about what did what is your what's your interpretation of this ending do you think that this is her accepting the fact that she's going to be found dead and that's why she's taking such risks that like you know it's it's this degree of like completely anonymous sex which would be a new low for her you know quote unquote or the fact that she just is like essentially inviting death into her house even though it's sort of unfair to put on this poor like homeless guy (laughs) <laughs> who I think just kind of looks more like he's desiring La Dolce Vita than than he has any, you know, stabby thoughts. But, like, then again, he might resent her and grow stabby. <laughs> like, what do you think was, this was about? I, I didn't know he's, what to do. He's just... No, I, I liked it. It was uh, it added a bit of mystery, a bit of a puzzle to the movie. It's He's like the dangerous version of the safe Warren Beatty. You know, he's got a pedigree, and he, he's a low-life gigolo, but he also knows everybody, and he's connected. This is like the, the even more, you know, dangerous version of her just, like, acting on her desire. Like, her career is over, and her looks have faded, and she's got, you know, as far as she's concerned, her, like, old life is over and she's 
the, the Mrs. Stone, the Karen Stone of the stage is gone forever. So she's just going to take this deep dive into defiling herself and going for whatever cheap sex thrill she can find because she's got nothing else. It's more of a metaphorical death, but it's uh, presented in kind of a literal way. I don't know. I'm a sucker for that. Like, or maybe this is her true love and she rescued him and then she finds... She's you know, always looking for the happy ending, Jenna. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was clearly like, I, I was like, oh, like I was waiting for him to like pull a knife out basically at the end of this. So that was, I don't know, it's just strange. I, I found it sort of jarring in comparison to the rest of the film, which is pretty serene. There are a lot of Negronis and whiskeys in this movie. I know, there's no, no Aperol spritz though. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I also like that the young starlet who shows up, Barbara, is played by future Bond girl Jill St. John from Diamonds Are Forever. And the Contessa, Lottie Lenya, is the butch lesbian villain in From Russia With Love. So it's nice to see both of them together in this movie. I'm not sure I mentioned who this was directed by either. Jose Quintero. And this was the only feature film he ever directed. He did some TV, but mostly, again, he's a, he's a stage director. Very famous director. And... Uh, did a bunch of Tennessee Williams on stage. I mean, I don't think it was badly directed. It felt like it, it maybe because he didn't have much film experience, he was kind of in the hands of the producers a bit, and they, they added the Hollywood sheen to it. It's also too bad there's not more location stuff in this movie. I mean, what little bit you get of Rome is really pretty, but most of it's just set in her apartment and, and clearly, um, you know, in, in studio sets. And this movie was remade in, in the 2000s with Helen Mirren, and I actually thought that Vivian Lee looked a lot like Helen Mirren at times in this movie. Hmm. How was the remake? I never saw it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Sweet Bird of Youth, 1962. We really didn't get very far in the 60s here. Directed by Richard Brooks. So did uh, Cannon Hutton Roof five years earlier. Yeah, we have Paul Newman's back as um, Chance Wayne, another gigolo. Yeah, he, he leaves his hometown of St. Cloud, Florida. It was Mississippi in the original play. To go try and make it in Hollywood, which, of course, he doesn't get very far. And he ends up leaning on being a gigolo until he can make it. And the movie starts when he returns back to his hometown with this old movie star, Sunset Boulevard style, almost. Another one. <laughs> yep. Uh, Geraldine Page, yet again, as Alexandra Del Lago. He's sort of toting her drunken ass around, waiting for his next break to happen. He thinks that if he's, gonna, if he's nice enough to her and he does everything she wants and he takes care of her and he makes sure she doesn't die and... He gives her her medicine and a bunch of weed, actually. This a lot of pot in this. That she will then reward him, not only with throwing him a couple bucks, but getting him in, in Hollywood as a bit actor. And the reason why he's come back is because his old girlfriend, Heavenly, <laughs> who's Shirley Knight, Heavenly Finley, he comes back to go see her, right? Like, basically, they're sort of secretly engaged, but her father, who is... this 
boss finley he's the town local town politician who's a real nasty piece of work and he basically as it comes we come to learn that he sort of forced chance out of town because he didn't think that he was suitable for heavenly so those are kind of the four main players of this whole movie and then we get more on on each of their backstories as as we go through it i like this movie i uh, what I like it about this movie is how vicious it is. <laughs> it is just completely nasty and evil. And I, the, what really works now, finally that sort of Hollywood sheen, which is less corny than the previous stuff, but definitely very staged and well lit that works to the advantage because you're sort of showcasing this sunny town of St. Cloud. And, and then you slowly, get into just how corrupt and creepy it is. Ed Begley playing Boss Finley, I think, was completely wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, especially his teeth. He's so nasty and evil. I mean, like, besides just being a completely corrupt politician who essentially is running, has mob rule on this town, uh, while he sort of, like, smiles and, and kisses babies, and he's, meanwhile, trying to, like, stab people underneath the table kind of stuff. He also has this mistress who he is so nasty to. But Miss Lucy, yeah, Madeline Sherwood, who's the mother of the no-neck monsters in uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. She's great, too, actually. She's wonderful yeah. because she's sort of his kept mistress in this hotel room, and all she does all day is watch television and then wait to have sex with him whenever he shows up. And then he comes in there and sort of kicks her around and, and treats her like trash, even though he's the trash that's setting up this whole situation. <laughs> And there's this really awful scene where he snaps her fingers in this gilded egg. She has to go to the doctor. It's, it's a really terrible. It's like this just shockingly <laughs> nasty in, in the most delightful way. But she gets some good comic beats out of her bandaged fingers. I mean, yeah, he's got this kept mistress, but his all his politics are based around like family values and, and you know being moral. And, and part of the, not to spoil it, but he gets his comeuppance uh, because... Part of why he wanted to send Chance away is because he uh, didn't want the the townsfolk to know that his daughter Heavenly was having premarital sex with with this guy, and you know, and it, it turns out that he actually paid for her to have an abortion. She was pregnant with Chance's child, and and he didn't know it, and so it comes to light that he paid for this abortion, and it's um, you know it ruins his career, so. It's, it's fun to watch his career fall apart because of uh, Chance. And it's also fun to see Rip Torn in a, a really early role as Boss Finley's son, Tom Jr. Like, he's such a creep, such a, like, toady, want-to-please-his-father, like, bully. He reminded me of, like, Ray Liotta. <laughs> yeah, but he's so weak. Like, he's, he's just, like, loves pushing people around, but he's not really, like, he tries to be threatening, but he, he doesn't really succeed. Yeah, all of the political stuff in this was actually, I think, the the better story. I actually didn't love Geraldine Page's. She does a good job, but I didn't love the character. And I, you know, which I guess, you know, is the namesake of the whole movie. But I I found her to be kind of the least interesting, though. I guess she's sort of a specter of the future of of having made it anyhow, which is sort of an, an interesting foil to Chance's dreams that he's, of course, never going to make it to anyhow. But this idea that even when you do make it, you end up as this like old bird, <laughs> you know, with a drinking problem and, and she can't function in society. And, you know, all she she just lives for, again, you know, the next uh, applause and, and the next 
great picture to, to come along for her to, uh, you know, become relevant again, essentially. And the second in the end, when she finally gets a phone call from, from a producer, she then turns to just berate and take out all of her self-hatred on, on Paul Newman's character, bashing him for trying to cut corners and cheat his way up to fame because he's be- being a gigolo and she calls him like a nameless body. And she says like the only door you're ever going to open you know, as opposed to her, she's, you know, he's like saying, you can open a door for me. And she says, the only door you're ever going to open is my car door. And then you'll, <laughs> you'll wake me up and you'll carry me into it, you know. So it's just sort of really, she gets really nasty herself. So I, I guess I enjoyed it, but it was, it felt like its own separate weird story that was a little bit confusing to watch intertwined with this whole heavenly stuff was just a bit convoluted, but I don't know the the sheer nastiness of everything in here is what really carried me through. <laughs> it does end up spending way too much time with Chance and Alexandra Delago in her suite in her bedroom. I mean, it's I like watching the two of them together, but there's just not quite enough dramatic material there for it to be worthy of quite so much screen time. I mean, you've got a subplot where where chance tries to you know, half-heartedly blackmail her into giving him a chance in hollywood he tries to you know tape record her talking about her drug use and it just it all blows over a lot more easily like she she just doesn't even care that much um and it's and just watching the seduction like i guess we're, we're supposed to assume that he's been driving her around to, to get her out of the public eye for a while I, I think he runs into her on the florida beach and is uh sees you know she's doing you know inappropriate things hitting on boys on the boardwalk buying drugs and whatever and he sort of whisks her away to protect her and and so they don't have any kind of sexual relationship yet even though he uses gigolo to the stars and just watching him sort of seduce her her sort of seduce him but neither one being totally sure is this really what we want to do sort of thing Uh, i think part of the reason why it spends so much time with her is that this had apparently originated as a two character play initially when he wrote it and it was just chance and delago which could be interesting actually and and to sort of just get the whole story to come out of the two of them bickering i think actually would have been pretty intriguing but then, of course, it went to Broadway and ended up being that they, they cast the entire original cast in this movie. So we're, we're getting a full play. <laughs> so, yeah, in the end, uh, Chance lets DeLago go off and, and reclaim this career that she thought she lost. And he finds out that Heavenly was having his child and, and you know, is just so bummed out by that that he just sort of gives up and, and goes back to the Finley estate and says, you know, I'm here and you're just going to have to deal with it and you know do what you want to me. I'm you're not going to you know get me out of Heavenly's life and uh and so Rip Torn beats him in the face with a cane and says, "Well, you know, your your career as a gigolo is over. What woman is ever going to want you now with a smashed in face?" I'll take him. <laughs> so it's sort of a uh, a coded castration there. I guess in the actual play, he chops his balls off, like literally chops his balls off. <laughs> And and in the original play, Heavenly has not had an abortion. Chance, in one of his visits home, has given her an STD and a botched operation to get rid of the infection has caused her to have a hysterectomy. So she's sterile and he's sterilized at the end of this movie. So all they have is each other. So it's kind of a, a happy ending. Sex can't get them in trouble anymore. They just have to be there for each other and roll with the punches and 
I think maybe that's why you like this movie because it's kind of a happy ending in a way. <laughs> like the, the boy and the girl get together. I didn't think this was a happy movie at all. <laughs> this movie was just vicious, but it was vicious in the right ways. It was vicious. You know, again, it's like that hypocrisy thing. I really like the shining a light on especially political hypocrisy is always a joy. But just this sort of duality of, of all of these characters I thought was intriguing. And when he gets the shit beaten out of him, balls intact, it was still pretty riveting. I felt bad for him. I, that's the other thing. I mean, Paul Newman is a good actor. <laughs> you know, I mean, I felt I felt really? for him. I was... Uh, uh, he's just pretty, right? He's pretty too, but I liked him in this movie. I thought he was endearing. You know, he's sort of stupid, but he's endearing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't really quite get a handle on his character. But... It felt like kind of... I mean, this is this sort of pan tennessee williams type like you're saying yeah well he's another fugitive kind another sexy gigolo who's there to prove that the aging spinster is still desirable even though she's not and she's an evil bitch <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just didn't think he had a whole lot to dig into with this character but it's still an enjoyable movie definitely less psychological stuff but again i thought the the sort of political stuff was was intriguing to me and the characters worked really well together. I think there was a good dynamic in this. Well, the next movie we both are on completely opposite ends of the spectrum <laughs> on, so... Well, this is no masterpiece, but I did like Period of Adjustment from early 60s here like a lot of these came out right at the beginning of the 60s based on a play from just a couple of years before the same name and the screenplay for this was written by Isabel Leonard who also adapted the Sundowners which we watched in Cinema 60 directed by George Roy Hill this was his first feature actually and by the end of the 60s he would go on to make uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid so he really made a name for himself in this decade, but uh, this wasn't such a promising start, I guess. You've got Jane Fonda as a nurse in training who falls in love with her patient, George Haverstick, who uh, has a nervous disorder. And she sort of cures his nervous disorder with sensuous massages, and they get married. <laughs> she faints at the sight of blood, so she knows she doesn't have a career in nursing. So she just says, yeah, I'm just going to... Cash in my chips and, you know, marry this guy that I've only known for a couple of days. So they get married right away and they head off to Florida, to Miami, to lie on the beach for their honeymoon. Of course, George shows up in a hearse. That's their just married car. And, and she's really upset about that. And it just goes downhill from there. You know, he's quit his job, so they have nothing to go back to St. Louis for. Right from the first moments after their wedding, he's already proving himself to be much more of a schmuck than she realized well he takes her to a diner on her wedding night like a gas station diner and everything that she has any expectations of romance he, he manages to completely subvert and then yell at her for ever having any expectations <laughs> <laughs> well i mean the real problem here is that she's sort of an innocent and, and doesn't want to um you know push him into sex and he's got this nervous disorder quote-unquote nervous disorder 
where he needs to be pushed a bit to have sex with her. And he thought that, oh, yeah, this nurse who gave me this sensuous massage, you know, to quote George Costanza, it moved. And I think that was enough for him to feel like he was in love with her. And and that day, uh, a sexual relationship might happen with her. When in fact, as we find out really, I mean, this movie makes it really clear. There's no gay subtext here. It's a gay context. George is... I mean, I guess by the end, it's a little ambiguous, but it's really clear, like right from the get-go, that George just doesn't like ladies, and that's the real problem with his marriage to Isabel. But anyway, on the way to Florida, and it it happens to be Christmas time, they stop at uh, George's friend's house, an old war buddy from Korea, Ralph Bates, played by Tony Franciosa, and he's having difficulties with his wife. His wife had just walked out on him the night that they arrive. And who shows up at their friend's house on Christmas Eve unannounced? That's, that's one of the problems with the, the story here. But Well, but she has a problem with that. Well, yeah, everything George does is wrong. But Ralph is happy to see them because he's all alone on Christmas Eve. His wife has walked out with her kid because he has just quit his job. Also, he told off his boss, who also happened to be his wife's father, the whole, you know, he's got this nice job in a milk factory that she got from, you know, as, as the boss's daughter. And he hates his father-in-law and, you know, tells him off in, in a drunken rage and on, at a Christmas party. And she's, you know, upset that he won't apologize to her father and, and leaves and says, you're, you're not the man I thought I married. And um, So, yeah, that's the setup. You've, you've basically got these two couples and you're comparing their and contrasting their, their relationships one is a gay man mar- who just married a, uh, a a cute virginal nurse, and the other is a uh, you know sexy playboy type, and he's married to this woman who he never really loved, was never really attracted to. We find out over the course of the movie that he's grown to have some very strong feelings for her, but she was sort of an ugly duckling that he agreed to marry just so he could get this like, nice job in the, in the milk factory. Didn't he make her get plastic surgery? Or he says he made her get her teeth fixed. Yeah, she had buck teeth. Definitely not the ugly duckling that they make her out to be. Yeah, because it's like like Lois Nelton or whatever. She's she's cute. Uh, yeah, but you put anybody up against Jane Fonda and they're going to look like an ugly duckling, I guess. But I mean, that's very true. Before I go off on this movie, where are you getting the gay <laughs> thing from? You didn't see it? No. Just because... He doesn't want to have sex. No. That's what his nervousness is. That's why he wants to go off with Ralph and just drive cattle in Texas. <laughs> you know, have a, <laughs> he just wants to go Brokeback Mountain with Ralph, and that's, that's all he's interested in. But he also has this, he feels like he has to have this conventional life and realizes very quickly that it was a mistake to get married and then try and do the conventional thing. And he goes off on Ralph for you know, having a house in the suburbs and having this conventional life, uh, you know, wife and child and... Christmas tree with all the trimmings. I didn't really pick up on that. I mean, like, I I guess. But I also feel like there is a degree... I mean, here's what I hate about this movie. I just thought that this was... This whole movie is set up as a comedy. And it's so depressing. George is such a jerk. (laughs) It's so depressing, but it's also just disturbing. I was genuinely disturbed by this movie. Yeah, it's great. And (laughs) both of these guys are just the most horrible terrible human beings ever and the movie ends with this nice message about learning to talk and express yourselves and being open it's almost like a commercial for therapy like couples therapy (laughs) 
which is, I guess it's a good message for whoever's asshole husband needed to hear it <laughs> or whatever woman saw this on her own and then, uh, you know, came back and, and decided maybe I'll try and talk to him openly or something, you know, like fine. But it's so disturbing. I mean, number one, George is a horrible guy. Like I, I this one thing, you know, there's something to be said about, uh, you know, people's expectations and, and, setting those before you get hitched. And clearly that was a genuine issue that they had here is that she thought, oh, we're going to get married. We're going to like go to a restaurant. We're going to be in a nice honeymoon suite. You know, you're going to love me and kiss me and be nice to me. And instead he is the opposite of all of those things. He's like a horrible person. He yells at her all the time. He like stands in the corner with a bunch of creepy guys at the gas station and like wolf whistles at his own wife as she sits on the other side of the room, just horrified that this is not only her wedding night, but like where she is. The more you talk about this, the more I like it. He drops. <laughs> he literally kicks her out of the car and throws her bag down the stairs uh, at his friend's house who she's never met and abandons her there because he just can't stand her and thinks like, you know, like, well, we're just not compatible and, and then drives away. And meanwhile, like she's stuck with this creepy ass guy, Ralph, who, who, as you said, his wife just left him and because he's even worse of a human being. And, no, you know, like he's Ralph. sitting there. Ralph's awful. Ralph gets <laughs> drunk. He tells his wife that she is nasty and ugly and she'll always be ugly. He takes his child's toy, his like two-year-old kid's toy. He throws it in the fire and he says, you better stop playing with all that sissy stuff. At that point, you didn't pick up on the whole gay story. I mean, like there was clearly like a lot of hatred for, you know, like homophobia. But like I didn't pick up on George. But here's the thing. I just think George is just like a horrible human being. I think he's like... He's this, this types of guys who have just absolutely no human skills whatsoever and expect that women are basically like their, their sex toys on demand whenever they want them. And that's what he sort of is touting himself to be. And then, of course, he, he isn't, which is what Ralph reveals about him is that he he's too chicken to do anything. I mean, I guess like I, now if, if you want to like go with with the. The whole uh, sissy angle, then, like, I suppose it was gay. <laughs> but I I don't know. I didn't... It, I thought it was more... Because he has all these lines about... Uh, well, I don't... Fuck. I guess you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, he says to her, you, you chose your affliction and I didn't. And the affliction being married to him and, you know, his affliction being the, the tremors that he has, which I guess is really just his homosexuality, but... I just hated him so much at this point that I just could not sympathize with him whatsoever or Ralph. I thought that they were both just awful human beings who deserved to rot in hell. <laughs> what really disturbed me, quite frankly, and this is, again, it's played for humor, was Jane Fonda calling her father and then just starting to weep uncontrollably on the phone because she's trying to tell him that she got married and, and like she just starts screaming like, you know, like, Daddy, I want to come home. And it just really upset me. <laughs> I just... It was the only moment in the movie that I actually laughed at. The only intentionally funny part that was was actually humorous. No, because this guy is so awful. Like, that was the <laughs> thing. It was like these two are like so believably terrible, you know, and violent and creepy. 
And like when at the point in which, you know, there's so much at the end too about this idea about like, you know, you got to understand your man. You got to get down there and, and break through the, you know, his uh, his masculinity, you know, and, and understand that, you know, he has feelings too. And I'm like, fuck his feelings. <laughs> like, I don't care. Like these guys are so horrible to everybody around them outwardly that i just like could not care less if like they both died in a car wreck that's what i wanted ralph is really nice to isabel when she shows up yeah because like she's you... hot and sexy and he's married to some old dirty cow you know what i mean like that was <laughs> it. You, that's what sucked you you expect him to be really sleazy towards her he is. he's well i didn't i thought that was sort of the twist is he's actually kind of gentlemanly like and i actually think he's got tony francios's got a lot of charisma it's nice to spend some time with him after having to sit in a car with with george with jim hutton for for most of the first third of this movie i mean that's part of the problem like but it may i think maybe it's just a good acting job on on jim hutton's part um, this guy who's just so uncomfortable in the skin that he makes the audience totally uncomfortable with him I don't know. I bought it. There's good <laughs> acting all around. I mean, like, I certainly bought that these were two total scumbags. The thing is, I just don't care. I just couldn't care less about these guys. They were just so awful. That was just one of those. It's like I've, I've watched too many movies about people like these, like, like just god awful men who, you know, are secretly like sad and insecure and, you know, need to be loved and need a woman to bring them out of their shell. And I'm like, I just want all of you to die. Like, I just, <laughs> I just have no patience for that story anymore. And, I, and you know, I just couldn't, could not get into it. And I just found it really disturbing. I just thought this is, this is like what happens, you know, like, like these women who naively get married and end up with these just awful abusers. And like, I don't know, it just creeped me out. Like, I just could not get into this whatsoever. Mm. And maybe the fact that it's from the 60s, quite frankly, and that they're sort of dancing around it. Like, again, it's like Tennessee Williams. Like, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> like, he knows that he's writing these, like, god-awful people that are just completely miserable. But there is, like, I don't know. There was just something too creepy about these guys. And to, to frame them as abusive husbands in this, like, comedic light, you know, like, to me, was just, it's in, like, really poor taste. See, I just always see so much self-loathing in the characters that Tennessee Williams has written that are supposed to be him in his plays that I always sympathize with these awful characters. Like I always sort of connect to them and, and sort of see myself in their flaws. And that's why I can never, you know, summer and smoke all of these movies that you hated just because you thought the characters were awful. Like they're, they're too much. Yeah. I just see too much of Tennessee Williams, the author in those characters to, to dismiss them. Like I, I, I want, I want to see their redemption. I want to see them, like, you know, come to accept themselves. And I have a lot at stake going into a Tennessee Williams play in that way, I guess. So I, maybe I can accept more awfulness than you do for that. Well, that's probably a better way to think about it because I've definitely, I, I mean, like, I watch these all very literally. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, you're right. I, Tennessee Williams, I have a lot of sympathy for him. I mean, his he had a pretty abusive and horrible childhood. And I, I mean, part of his talent is that when he writes these characters, they are so believable, even though they're also over the top, even though the circumstances are like misery piled on misery, piled on self-loathing, piled on misery. It's believable because you, you know these people. You know, it's never totally just pulled out of, of thin air. It's written well. It's just if period of adjustment had been directed as a Tennessee Williams play you know what I mean like if it had had a little bit more gravity and you know had that it they could go with the dark humor 
But this one was just too, again, it was like that bubbly, corny sheen on it, playing for the laughs of the dumb blonde who got married to the impotent war hero or whatever. You know, it's like, I just didn't, I didn't like the normalizing of, of like that creepiness. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just could not get into that movie. It's super abrasive. It is hard to get into just because right off the bat, like once the opening credits are done, George is just an incredible creep. Um, but I, I like that. I like ugly comedies, though, I guess. And I like that this is the one movie that is trying to be a comedy that, that we watched. And this is what a Tennessee Williams comedy looks like, I guess. Now, actually, I would argue that Night of the Iguana, which is the next movie, is 100%. Oh, you're right. That's a, this is a pitch-perfect black comedy. Yeah, you're right. But it's not, it doesn't have that 60s sex comedy tone the way that Period of Adjustment does. This is a sophisticated, dark comedy. And it's a brilliant movie. Nineteen sixty-four, directed by John Huston, based on a nineteen sixty-one play by the same name, which I think it had evolved from a short story that Tennessee Williams wrote and then turned into a one act. And so this is sort of a story. He'd been spending a lot of his life on And John Huston wrote it himself with his favorite screenwriter, uh, Anthony Vailer. Yeah, we maybe should have saved this movie for our disgraced Men of the Cloth episode. And so we would have had fewer movies to talk about because this is one of the best ones. Uh, Richard Burton plays Reverend Dr. T. Lawrence Shannon who at the beginning of the movie has a total freak out in his parish. I'm sure it's supposed to be Columbus, Mississippi or some version of it. You don't really know because there's all this whispering and because he's had this affair with this young parishioner, like some, some young Sunday school teacher or something. You know, somebody he shouldn't have been messing around with at all because of her age, but the fact that he's a reverend made it even more shameful. And they're all kind of gathered in church just to whisper about this reverend who's done this awful thing and he calls them out on it, calls them all hypocrites and storms out of the church and the opening credits happen and all of a sudden we're in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico and he's uh, leading these tour groups on, on the famous churches of Mexico. He's given up the cloth and he's just a drunken tour guide who hates himself and hates his life and hates these middle-aged American women that he has to drag all over Mexico. And he seems to keep getting into trouble. He can't seem to keep it in his pants even though he, he really tries. The drama in this movie really comes to a head when uh, Sue Lyon, who is Lolita uh, in the movie Lolita, is traveling with her aunt, Miss Fellows, who's very clearly, I think it, it even says at one point that she's a lesbian. Like, he I accuses think, her. Yeah, so it might be the first time in a uh, Tennessee Williams movie that homosexuality is actually called by its name. Um, her spinster aunt is taking her on this tour to all these Mexican churches, and she's just constantly flirting with the Reverend Dr. T. I mean, he knows he's attracted, like he's not immune to her charms, but he doesn't, he's not instigating any of it. He doesn't want to have anything to do with her because he knows that it'll just get him in a lot of trouble. But she just keeps forcing herself on him, and things get worse and worse. She, like he's out swimming in the ocean, and she joins him, and then the aunt gets all upset, and... You know, finally, the aunt threatens to call Shannon's boss and tell the company what a creep 
he is and hitting on her 16 year old niece and and uh you know trying to ruin his life you know make it even worse than it already is and so he takes refuge in this old hotel that's closed down for the season because he doesn't think there's a phone there and he like steals the keys and the carburetor so the tour bus can't leave and they're out in the middle of nowhere and uh turns out his old friend fred who who ran the place died fairly recently and his young widow played by Ava Gardner Maxine runs the place and Shannon kind of talks her into you know opening up a few rooms just so his guests his tour can uh, sleep there for the night stay there for a while while he figures out what he's going to do to keep from losing his job you know she has kind of a fondness for him he's kind of a drunken charmer and she's just kind of a freewheeling type who who is sort of amused by his antics and how much trouble he always gets himself into so she's like oh sure Bring them on. Bring all your guests. This uh, this will be fun. Let's see what happens. And then Deborah Carr shows up. She's traveling with her grandfather, who's a famous poet, and he's ninety plus years old and, and on his last legs. But he just has to finish this, you know, his his final masterpiece before he gives up the ghost. She pays for their travels, uh, you know, all around the world just by doing portraits for people in the marketplace. So she's kind of a sketch artist, and that's the setup. And it's another movie like fugitive kind where so much of the pleasure of this movie is just watching the three leads interact with each other they're all so good they're all such memorable characters yeah i agree if it hadn't been for the very sharp and smart script and the outstanding lead performances this could have been the most obnoxious movie unlike the the last one i mean there's so much worse in this i mean like you have pedophilia you have drinking there's like all these madonna horror women there's drug use overt sex i mean there's so much there's so many like hot button topics <laughs> <laughs> yeah maxine and her cabana boys is is pretty entertaining she just has these two hot young studs around to, that she frolics in the ocean with and you know makes love to in public and... yeah ava gardner is like living everyone's best life having her own hotel as a, as a business owner in mexico with these two cabana boys that do nothing but like shake maracas <laughs> and then just like run around topless like that's all they do yeah, I don't know. It's just it, considering it's full of statutory rape and homophobic terror and slut shaming and <laughs> really toxic masculinity. It's like it, this is such a good, sharp film. I mean, it's it's genuinely it's interesting. And I mean, number one, it's John Huston. And I mean, this is these are all of his favorite things. <laughs> You know, so it's not a surprise that all of these things are here. And he has failed in, in these sort of pursuits. So I was really pleasantly surprised by this one. But I think that there's this really interesting message about kindness and blind loving acceptance in this film, considering it's going for all of these controversial topics that are, quite frankly, this movie feels controversial even for today. I mean, there's a lot that's confronted so directly head on with this such a gray area that I cannot imagine it being in theaters today. I'm trying to think of something I can even compare it to that isn't just a movie about that one thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's one thing to have, like, a pedophile priest. Um, it's another thing to sort of show him as having, like, internal struggles and and wanting to do better, but then giving into temptation. And then even being the quote-unquote victim in this situation with a, this young girl throwing herself at him. And then to even portray that as being the dynamic in itself, of course, is inherently (laughs) 
problematic, uh, as we will say. Well, the problem is that today they would have to show, they'd have to be explicit about all this stuff. Right. I mean, and as explicit as this is compared to 50s versions of Tennessee Williams plays, it still leaves a lot to the imagination, and that's why it gets away with it and why I love Tennessee Williams movies. It's like, okay, we know this stuff is going on, but you're not showing it or mentioning it, and it's just exciting to think about all the sordid behavior that's going on just on the side of the frame. Because the camera isn't pointing in the right direction, you can't see it happening. Right. This film, it totally lives at the edge of all of the boundaries and in between the lines that it's trying to cross. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable that it is just brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in part just for showing things in such an uncomfortable light. I don't know. There's something very interesting and insightful about it. I, I, I also thought that this, it's weirdly a downright Christian movie. You think? Deborah Kerr's character, I thought, felt, but it's not, it's not traditional Christian. You know what I mean? Like there, but she's such a, such a loving and forgiving and sympathetic and sort of, open character even though she's also a bit of uh, you know she has her own issues but i feel like in the end the whole point of this film is about acceptance it's such a kinky movie but it's also <laughs> it, it's weirdly christian i don't know you you don't think so well i just think it's so accepting of unconventional morality and behavior in a way that none of the other films have been up to this point. Like, it's such a celebration of just living the way that you want to live. Right. And, you know, to hell with everybody else. And, yeah, I mean, in that way, it's like, you know, people are people. You have to love everybody equally, good or bad. And I guess that is a Christian message, but it also feels like, fuck you, normals. This is how I want to live. And that doesn't seem, I don't know, it's it's... I guess it's more at the heart of Christianity than the practice of it. For sure. and that But that's what's great about it. It's subversive. There's a line where uh, Deborah Carr says to Richard Burton, you're just crucifying yourself up here on this lush hill with ropes instead of nails. You know, she calls him out on being this sort of self-torturing and self-persecuted and creating all of his own problems when, as you said, like, then look at Ava Gardner. She's she's living it up. She's, like, totally thrilled. And, you know, she. It, but it's weird to, to then have a movie that creates the Christ-like figure as a pedophile priest, but... But in reality, the pedophilia is just a stand-in for homosexuality. As usual, the real story is that the Reverend Doctor is gay. That's the cause of controversy at his parish. And, and Where did you well, get I mean, that from this? <laughs> no, it's, it's so... The, this sort of lack of any like sexual interest between Shannon and Maxine or Shannon and Hannah, uh, Deborah Carr, I'm not sure we've said her character's name already. The problem is he's gay, not that he like keeps having flings with little girls. It's I'm not buying that. The other ones <laughs> I buy it for. I'm not buying that. I actually think the stand in is Ava Gardner. She's the Tennessee Williams. But she's so well adjusted. She could never be the Tennessee Williams. She loves her life just messing around with these cabana boys. There's no way. Like, I see why you're saying that, but no, clearly the tortured homosexual is Richard Burton in this movie. And you don't have to read it that way. That's part of what I love about this movie is that you can just accept the story for exactly what it says it is, and it, it works perfectly. But I also just cannot help reading the author into the work. It's just wild to me that we have this Christian movie that one of the examples of Christianity is Hannah talking about the two times that she ever had love in her life, which she gets asked by Richard Burton if she's ever had sex. And she replies with these 
two instances of situations that are not sex. But one of them is that she says she met this Australian underwear salesman and he gets her in a cab and he says, will you take off one piece of clothing and let me hold it? He says, I'll look away. So you don't know what piece of clothing she took off, though I feel like it's implied it has to be underwear. (laughs) So she says that she does it and, you know, oh, he was a gentleman and he took it and he just held it and I don't know what he sniffed it or whatever. I don't know. And she says it was sad. It wasn't dirty, though. And then she says, nothing human disgusts me unless it's unkind or violent. She's great. Uh, To me, it's a perfect example of applying Christian principles to everything. You know, of course, which is what was not happening in the 60s and still doesn't happen today half the time. But I do love it for having done that. I don't know. This feels like Tennessee Williams at his most optimistic. And maybe that's in part why I see him as Ava Gardner in this, because it's someone trying to just like... He's just trying to live, you know? This is like his one chance at just embracing who he actually is yeah. and accepting himself and talking himself into accepting himself. And maybe there's this that piece of him becomes this, you know, he hates himself so much he's like a pedophile priest. I don't like the pedophile homosexual <laughs> uh, comparison. I think that that's really creepy and awful. So I don't know that, I mean, maybe he having hated himself in the 60s would have made that comparison I don't like that, though, so I'm not going to make it. And then this play was such a hit. This was such a big hit for him that I also can't help but feel like this was him at his best and and trying to fix something for himself and trying to get over something because that's really what all of his hit plays were, was him trying to work through something. And and even though a lot of them are depressing, you know, like The Glass Menagerie was autobiographical and and trying to work through a really horrible situation. And in that way, it's sort of therapeutic, I think, for him to be honest. And when he isn't honest is when these scripts become, you know, they're interesting. They become these character studies. They become these sort of portraits painted of horrible people. And, And I enjoy that, but they're not as wonderful as a movie like this or a movie like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. You know what I mean? Yeah, I see. I mean, I do love the ugly and depressing side of his plays, but this one's my favorite of what we watched easily. I've seen it several times, and it's one of my absolute favorite Williams adaptations, and probably a lot of that is because it's such a positive film, and it does have a happy ending of sorts, and it does seem like Williams has kind of found an answer, has kind of accepted himself in this movie. and So, yeah, I'll give you your happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> I was disappointed by the next one, though. Yeah, we're finally making our way into the later 60s now. In 1966, this property is condemned. probably the least true to the source material because it's just based on a one act uh, of the same name that he wrote 20 years earlier. Directed by Sidney Pollack, starring Natalie Wood, Robert Redford, Charles Bronson, and uh, Francis Ford Coppola was one of the three screenwriters. Right, I saw that. And I wouldn't say he did a particularly good job. <laughs> oh, no, From... me neither. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a great script, and I feel like them trying to turn this into a three-act movie was the big problem. Uh, It's set during the Depression, small town Mississippi, not too far from New Orleans, just like all the rest of these movies. 
Robert Redford works for the train company and he comes to this town that pretty much only exists because the train comes through and all the people who live there are employed by the train company and he's there to lay off a whole bunch of people because it's the Depression. Uh, he ends up at this flop house run by Hazel Starr, played by Kate Reed, and you know a lot of the people who work for the train company live at her flop house and they like to spend time with Hazel's sexy daughter, Alva, played by Natalie Wood. You know, Hazel, her mother encourages her to be flirty with these guys and show them a good time and make her flop house the best damn flop house in the South. Um, her sister, Willie Starr, is kind of the narrator for this movie. And the, this whole thing is told in flashback. Uh, her younger sister, Willie, played by Scout, uh, Mary Batham, who played Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird. She says that Alva was the main attraction of her mother's flop house, which is now the condemned property. Like, just hanging out with this kid on the train tracks still living in this condemned house that nobody lives in anymore. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, who knows where her mother and her sister or anybody else is. All she's got is her crazy doll. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much the whole setup, and it, you can see how it could fit into a one-act, because there's not a whole lot of story here. I have a sense that the one-act was mainly just Willie telling the story about her sister, and, and probably Alva doesn't even actually appear in the original play. I don't know that for sure, but that's sort of how this movie feels. Is like, we're going to turn this one act into a full-length feature, so we'll, we'll just show an extended flashback for, you know, an hour and a half of the one hour, 45-minute running time. And, uh, yeah, so it's uh, Robert Redford comes to town, and, and uh, Natalie Wood is like, I'm not attracted to any of these old, poor train worker guys who are, have no class. He's Charles Bronson. Yeah. <laughs> but this guy, this beautiful blonde-haired boy who's shown up that everybody hates because he's here to fire them. I want to have a fling with this guy, and I don't want anything in return. I just you know, want to do something for myself. Go ahead. I'm going to set you free to go off on this movie now. I don't know that I can even... I'm not going to go off on this movie so much. Is that it? Just it, It's just not good. It's just... It feels like people pretending to be Tennessee Williams. It doesn't feel like a true Tennessee Williams play. It's, it's, there's no depth to it. It's just a hooker with a heart of gold and an attractive guy, uh, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, you know, he hates those sluts. You know what I mean? Like that, There's really nothing here. And unfortunately, the whole thing's wooden. I feel like Robert Redford is terrible in this. I have just no sense of who he is. You know, he's just there to slam on Natalie Wood for everything that she does. <laughs> everything. I mean, her lifestyle to, like, the second that she decides to try and, like, shoot for the stars and find some happiness in her life, he's like, that's stupid. Like, life doesn't work that way. And it's like, oh, cool. Thanks, guy. You know, like, it, there's just nothing. But then again, when she goes off on her little, like, now we're in a train car, and this train car is a real, you know, fancy one. And can you imagine us at the turn of the century? And it's like, no, shut up. <laughs> it's just flat and, and boring. Like, it's just so, like, cliche. Everything in this movie felt like a cliche. And I don't know if that's, you know, again, now now that it's 1966 and, like, the same old damn thing's been done over and over and over again, and not only the originals but also the knockoffs. Like, this just feels like a knockoff. This just feels like, you know, it's the same story that's been done. Like, a carbon copy of a carbon copy of a carbon copy. So that, and at the end, you're left with this, like, soulless, poor print <laughs> of Natalie Wood sort of trying, but not really having much to do other than look hot. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed watching this movie. 
even just for the Tennessee Williams signifiers you do get, you get Moonlight Casino again. They're sort of trapped between looking for, for a better life somewhere and they think they're going to find in New Orleans, and if not in New Orleans, in Memphis, and, you know, just people being ashamed of their temptations and, you know, just, yeah, I guess, I guess what you said, like, it's all... It's all kind of what you've come to expect from Tennessee Williams, and it, it does seem a little hollow here. But I think it's a beautiful movie to look at. James Wong Howe, it was one of his last features that he shot. See, I love him, but I felt like he was phoning it in. I don't know. I mean, he's one of the great cinematographers. you got to know who this guy is. He shot all the great movies. He, you know, he's working from the silent days on. He didn't do a, a ton in color, and I think I was impressed with how well he handled color in this. The way it was shot felt very new Hollywood to me, which seemed odd because it was shot by this old school DP. It may have to do with the film stock, the sort of grainy 35 millimeter. Had a had a similar look to Bonnie and Clyde, I guess. And it's, it's starting to look like the 70s already here. And I think a lot of the location shooting really helped with that. There are only a couple spots in there, like when they're skinny dipping, there was very clearly on a set. But the rest is like, you know, on location. And I think that that really gives it a, a a new Hollywood feel. It's sort of gritty and grimy. And yeah, I think it had a nice feel. And I liked Alva. I wanted to see what happened to her. <laughs> it's a terrible ending. It's one of these like tragic endings that they like foreshadow for you in, in you know 15 different ways. They say, oh, this is not going to have a happy ending. This is going to have a tragic ending. Just wait for it. Just wait for it. Like it will, I think Willie will even says at the beginning, like, you, you know that she's talking about her sister and how she must not be alive anymore. But it's just such a plot contrivance to have her get tuberculosis or ever she dies. Yeah, at it was the so end. stupid. <laughs> it was like they go through this whole thing. You know, she she ends up marrying Charles Bronson just to spite her mom. And, uh, of course, then Robert Redford comes back in the picture and then she's going to live with him and. He doesn't think she's an evil witch whore. And so he, you know, thinks he's going to marry her. And then the mother shows up and she tells him just to spite Alva. And uh, that's it. You know, it's like lightning strikes. And then it comes. Yeah, it cuts back to this, her dumb sister. Well, then she done died of tuberculosis. It's like, OK, cool. You know, like whatever. Uh, don't be mean to Willie. No, Willie sucked. <laughs> Willie was so lame. I did hate how the mother just turns into such an evil person by the end. Like, for most of the movie, she's just sort of blindly letting her her guests sleep with her daughter, like, not really thinking about how she's doing something really bad. She's clearly a bad mom, but she's not pointedly evil. It's a cop-out. Yeah. I liked a lot about this movie, but the the script is a real letdown. So we should move on. Well, it only gets worse from here. (laughs) 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 well some might say worse in the best way imaginable there are people who love boom from Joseph Losey, screenplay by Tennessee Williams, based on his play The Milk Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore, from a few years before. It's John Waters' favorite movie, and you can sort of see why. It's Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and Noel Coward just 
being as campy as they absolutely possibly can. I guess Elizabeth Taylor in this movie was a real inspiration for Divine. Like it, in every movie, Divine is playing sissy go forth in all John Waters' appearances. So it's an important movie, especially if you're a John Waters fan, you've got to see it. But it's not as fun as I'd hoped it would be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's sort of it. It's basically this Mrs. Goforth, Elizabeth Taylor living on this empty island in... Where, it was in Italy? <laughs> it was, yeah, Mediterranean. I think it was shot in Sardinia, but it's it's her own private island somewhere in the Mediterranean. And, uh, yeah, and, and she's... Close to Capri, I guess, because... Noel Coward is the witch of Capri who comes for a visit. That's right. Yes, yeah, it all sounds more interesting to even just describe the, like like some instances of this film. But to say the plot, it's like I don't. It's just this. It's just Elizabeth Taylor on an island. She has like an evil little person who guards her island with a bunch of dogs. She has yeah, Noel Coward is her neighbor, the witch of Capri. She has uh, this Mrs. Black. Blackie. Uh, who is a woman servant who just gives her lip constantly and doesn't do anything for her because she's just evil and makes bad decisions. She's there to transcribe her memoirs, which uh, which Sissy go for. Which, which she like yeah. barely does because she's too busy trying to like bone Richard Burton, which makes no sense because apparently the character Richard Burton is playing was Chris Flanders was meant to be a really young guy. And Elizabeth Taylor insisted that it would be Richard Burton. And so, uh, you know, he's meant to be basically yeah. someone who, who storms her island and says, I met you once. And um, is meant to be the young man who seduces her, but he's instead a middle-aged weirdo. <laughs> yeah, he's he's the young poet who lives off the generosity of, of old rich widows right and and they he gets to be known as the angel of death because he's only ever seen with old people who then eventually die and then he moves on he's like a permanent house guest and that's yeah. it i mean like there's just a lot of scenery chewing <laughs> there's a lot of capital a acting great costumes yes i mean elizabeth taylor i would say just come for her kabuki outfit that she casually wears to dinner because it is amazing it's like she's wearing like a coral reef on her head and like this completely embroidered and like glittered gem outfit it looks amazing i loved it genuinely unironically loved it would wear for every podcast and richard burton is dressed as a samurai for the entire film for no particular reason with the samurai I guess sword the play was meant to be like a kabuki or something yeah, i don't know much about the play but there's reference to kabuki in there and sissy does some uh, kabuki acting for us which is really pretty incredible you know this is the kind of movie you need to watch with an audience though i watched it by myself and i bet if i had if you were there like watching it with me i bet we would have really enjoyed this movie yeah, I think so. It's not. A... I think I would have liked it better. I would, but the problem was I was trying to figure out what it was about, <laughs> and I think that that's not the right way to go because it gets really lost in its own hot air butthole. Because it it's sort of on the edge of an interesting concept, which would be this idea of this older woman sort of battling death, who comes to her door in the form of a young handsome man. I could have gotten behind that general concept, except that I just don't know what she's going on about half the time. And then Richard Burton starts speaking in riddles. And it's like, at a certain point you just tune out because neither of them, it's like they're, they're not speaking to each other. They're just speaking. Yeah. 
you know, and, and honestly, not even in the same movie sometimes, or at least at bare minimum, not the same scene. I mean, that is it. They're sort of monologuing to themselves and they're not even listening to yeah. each other. And that's supposed to be their dynamic, but it doesn't make for easy watching or for understanding what the hell they're talking about. Yeah, I mean, like, if, if they were saying things that were as poetic as they think that they're saying, you know, this is when I'm like, okay, finally the script lets me down. I feel like for at least the vast majority of these films, except for perhaps, I guess the last two is really where, where I'm let down by the script very specifically. Because usually it's like... The, Tennessee Williams, and especially at this point, I mean, this was the one, as I, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I was flopped twice and, and I think really sealed his downward slide into alcoholism and unpopularity. And you can tell that he's off his game because it doesn't really make any sense. You know, it's a lot of pretentious hot air being thrown around that never adds up to much of anything. And, and, if you read about this movie, it's telling you that it's about like embracing mysticism and, and living your best life and, and her, you know, not going gentle into that good night or whatever. But it's like, I, I don't get that from this movie. All I get is that Elizabeth Taylor is being like her most Elizabeth Taylor and, and obnoxious. And, and I mean, I like that. That's great. But I don't know. Well, I, I didn't. And I also thought that I was pretty disappointed with the direction here. I feel like Losey, I either love him or I hate him. I feel like his highs are real high and his lows end up being just really like muddy. Like this yeah. whole movie was muddy. I feel like his hands are really tied here by the stars and Probably. knowing he had a flop on his hands, but just trying to have some fun with it. And it just, it's only the most perverse kind of fun. It's like you have to be John Waters to really get a lot of fun out of this movie. I think. Tennessee Williams, though, claimed it was his favorite adaptation of any of his plays, which I don't really believe, but maybe because it was his last <laughs> hurrah and he wrote it himself and maybe has some special attachment to this play that doesn't translate to the audience at all. But it was the first one of these films where he contributed to the screenplay, wrote the screenplay at all since the 50s. Like, I don't think... Oh, actually, he co-wrote Fugitive Kind with somebody. But no, he didn't have anything to do with the scripts for any of the other movies we watched. But this was a solo effort from him. Well, this was totally panned by critics, and it really made a huge dent in Elizabeth Taylor's career. This was also after Dr. Faustus, which we watched in a uh, an earlier episode, and uh, which was equally as terrible. This is kind of like Dr. Faustus, except this I like this better than Dr. Faustus I do in too. a way yeah. because it, at least it was more visually interesting. And it, I, I like thinking about John Waters watching this movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, that is definitely more fun to me. I'm almost ready to rewatch it just so that I can think about John Waters the entire time. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, but probably, as you said, with an audience. Like, I don't know that I really want to watch this alone. It was, this was tough watching alone. <laughs> I would have preferred it with Divine in the, in the Elizabeth Taylor role. Oh, my God. Or yes. anybody else, for that matter. Like, she was clearly not old enough to be playing the role. I think every play that Tennessee Williams wrote in the 60s, I think he wrote for Tallulah Bankhead, and she either did or didn't perform them on stage. I think this was one where she did actually perform the role that was written for her on stage. And Tab Hunter was uh, Chris Flanders, the young sexy poet who is a total young boy toy type. So with that casting, Tallulah Bankhead and Tab Hunter, the, the movie makes a whole lot more sense. Right. This casting just doesn't make any sense at all. I honestly also wonder that if it was restored, if we had like a 4K restoration, if I would like this a bit better. Mm. Just because there, there's the costumes are amazing. 
And there's a lot of little details that kind of get washed out in these like white buildings on, you know, br- with bright sunlight. And I and I kind of wonder if that would help. It's just these vast interiors that are are so like there's nothing appealing about them. Even like they try and fill one wall with a giant like golden metal robe. That's really like it. It's so 1968. It's really impressive. But the set decoration is interesting but the spaces are so vast that these like giant pieces of obnoxious art just don't make that much of an impression (laughs) (laughs) how about that weird like sex dungeon like it's a sex cave guest house (laughs) that richard burton gets put in yeah and it looks like it looks like one of the rock rooms at the madonna inn (laughs) like it's like it looks like an hourly motel he has his own uh, like rock hot tub that he gets in, <laughs> and we get to like kind of see his butt. It was really weird. It absolutely looks like you know when James Bond invades the villain's lair and the villain shows him to his bedroom that he's had all prepared for James Bond when he shows right. up. It looks exactly like one of those bedrooms, big time. Uh, and the music was by John Barry, who is the '60s Bond composer he did all, all the 60s bonds i think all the music in those and this is joseph losey coming off of marcy blaze too so all of his best work yeah maybe if we went into this movie looking for a james bond movie we would have enjoyed it more honestly double feature with modesty blaze wouldn't hurt yeah any excuse to watch that movie wouldn't hurt though so really we watched tennessee williams decline over the course of the 60s with one major blip in, in 64 <laughs> with night of the iguana which is one of his absolute best adaptations. But yeah, I, I feel like, I don't know. I guess we had some, some wildly differing opinions on these movies, so so we can't quite map it the same way that we have the movies in other episodes. But he, he definitely went out with a whimper rather than a bang, rather than a boom. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I learned is that you have to watch these movies the Bart way, which is to think very much of Tennessee Williams as you're watching these <laughs> Because if you take them literally, I don't know, like, and and now on one hand, I would argue that any movie adaptation of something should be taken for what it is. And you shouldn't like, you know, for example, if something based on a book, you you can't think about the book when you're watching the movie. The movie is what it is. Full stop. And I guess like in part, I would say that these movies are, you know, they're, they're totally have merit to be watched in that way. But I think that they're far more enjoyable to watch them thinking about where Tennessee Williams was and who he is in the film. Like the way that you're watching these is definitely more fun than the way that I watched. Them. <laughs> and it's not a way that I watch movies very often. I'm, I'm not very interested in the biographies of the artists behind the works, but it just really pays off with Tennessee Williams. Like I, I think because it's just so easy to track his obsessions from play to play that you want to know who this guy is and why he's so tortured. Yeah, I mean, like all of these, you know, again, the scripts were, were good. And I think until the last two, which just feel like that he's phoning it in. But even then, you know, as we just said, Boom has some watchable qualities. But uh, yeah, I don't know. There's always something there. There's always something interesting. And they're also, they're just so shocking. Uh, that's the one thing. I'm, I'm just surprised at the fact that these are still so shocking. And then when you go back and look at the play, like you... Like you mentioned multiple times, the plays are even more crazy. Right. 
And I can't even imagine those being on stage now either. I mean, I know they have been, but like it's so different from what we're used to seeing. And I think that there's a big part of that is that Tennessee Williams is going for the honesty in these situations and not for the shock. And we're so used to seeing things that are being done for the shock value that when you see something that's just brutally honest, it's even more shocking than when it's just like, you know, someone killed a child or something. I don't know, like something that's like, you know, inherently shocking. Yeah. I mean, I think he ends up exaggerating the the shocking nature of, of what happens in his movies, but I think it's all for a particular effect. Like he's, you know, he's trying to delve into like these depths of depravity that, you know, just to give you a hint of his own like self-loathing and, and how appalled he is at his own desires and temptations that he has to like, as substitutes for this ugliness he sees in himself, he, he puts in like the removal of uh, of Chance's testicles in Sweet Bird of Youth or Sebastian getting eaten alive by beach boys uh, in uh, Suddenly Last Summer. Well, I think there's like there's truth in, in theatricality a lot of the times, you know, this idea that the that the telling of the story is is more truthful sometimes than the actual story, because you're trying to, you know, encompass all the emotions that are, are part of the act. So it's not only that the act is horrible, but the terror that comes from it. And so, I mean, to have, like, in Sweet Bird of Youth, the essentially the lynching crowd come around and, like, take off someone's balls, to me is, you know, it's it's both metaphoric and, and also very honest and truthful. <laughs> it's like, that's what these guys do. I mean, like, that's quite literally what they do, even if they're not literally doing that. You know, it's there's, a, there's that really sort of thin line between, I don't know, it's it, you think about, like, just bullies and jerks and abusers and all of these things and usually the things that they amount to are, are so many small little instances that it's hard to portray but if you just like say well all of these small little instances actually build up to this one huge emotion and it feels just like this like it feels like being castrated like well let's, let me just like castrate the character to show what this like how much this abuse actually builds up to and how much these types of people are what these types of people are actually capable of as bullies and as jerks and abusers and that's what's you know it, it works it, there's there's a there's a logic to it even if it's not factually accurate or yeah. whatever i mean it's all fake anyhow <laughs> but you know and, and like that's more interesting to me than you know well he's a bad guy because he killed a woman you know like okay <laughs> <laughs> sure you know like but you're not giving me enough information whereas like i feel like tennessee williams he, he doesn't just go for the it's never just like the death it's never the act that's shocking it's everything that builds up to it and as you said it's, it's everything that we don't see that then lets you realize just how horrible that act truly is that that it can't even be shown or, or seen or spoken of in a weird way or that things get internalized to the point that they overwhelm somebody to, to such a degree without being shown or without being experienced every day. It's like PTSD. You're still experiencing it. I don't know. I, he just, he manages to really justify, I think all of his anger and bitterness and, <laughs> uh, and, and self-loathing in only a way that someone who's just deeply depressed can. <laughs> and it works. It's unfortunate that the sixties weren't more well-suited to Tennessee Williams 
work, as interested as people seem to be by his his work in the '60s. I mean, I think you know, feeling like, oh, finally we can do his work justice because we can actually talk about these things on the screen. It actually takes takes a little something away, and uh, you know, it's mostly just you know, secondary not prime Williams we get in the 60s. You know, it's the plays he was writing in the 60s and the adaptations, just, he was a man out of time. His time was up and we're, we're reaching the end here. I did end up watching the final film adaptation of Tennessee Williams' uh, last of the Mobile Hot Shots from 1970, just, you know, for completion's sake. And it's it's interesting, James Coburn and Lynn Redgrave, and I thought it was an improvement over Boom, but it's definitely not a great movie, but you can sort of see why Nobody tried to make Tennessee Williams after the 70s. I mean, I guess there were TV versions of you know, Streetcar Named Desire and like other really minor adaptations of his things, but he really just didn't have a place. His The, the kind of subjects he was addressing, just uh, people were talking about them too openly in the 70s, you know, in the late 60s and the 70s, and it just, there's no more place for, you know, talking about what you can't talk about. We, I feel like we have to end this on like a total downer the way that all of these movies end on. So, uh, yeah, I'm off to drink and drug myself to death now, just like Tennessee Williams. Well, two young men carry me and throw me off the cliffs of Capri. You might think that there's, there's many kinds of people in this world. There's only two kinds. The buyers and the ones that get bought. No, there's another kind. It's a kind that don't belong no place at all. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.